Amen. Thank you, ladies, for beautiful worship as we get to just sing praises to our Creator God. Good morning. My name is Marissa McCoy. I'm one of the student pastors here at FCC, and I'm also a mom. And as we um, as we prepare for this day, especially while we were singing those songs, I I tend to think about all the women who God has blessed me with to be moms to me, to pour their truth into me, to pour their wisdom into my life, and to show me what it looks like to chase after Jesus and to follow him. And I'm especially thankful for two women this morning, the first being my own mother who gave birth to me and along with my father raised me. She loved me and loves me and my brother fiercely, with just like you moms understand, with such passion. And, and her her heart song for us was to know Jesus, that we wanted to have, that she wanted us to have a relationship with him. And so my whole growing up years at the house, it was constantly about, have you read the word? Have you studied your Bible? Have you been in the scriptures? Have you seen what Jesus said today? Over and over again, as I, as I grew up, and I want to be very honest with you this morning, it totally irritated me. She was so irritated, she would not stop. It was a clang, just clang, clang. Have you read the word? Have you been in the word? So finally I decided, you know what? I think if I will get in the word, maybe she will stop. Maybe she will stop irritating me. And so I started to study the word. And do you know what God did in those, that moment of irritation that my mom did in my life? He developed a thirst in me. He developed a hunger in me. For his word, because once I started to study, once I kept the noise out of my ears from my precious mama who would not leave me alone and kept irritating me, he grew this deep love I have for his word even to this day. And so I'm so thankful for her and her persistence that she had. I'm also thankful for my mother-in-law. Um, that girl is fun. I'm telling you, she has taught me the joy it is to have in family. The joy it is to laugh with your family and to have a good time. And any time, any time I get to be in front of my mom is a good time. And I love her dearly. And as I was thinking of this Mother's Day weekend, I thought about um, some stories that she's told me in the past of her and her escapades in mothering. And one story in particular that I've, that I've thought all these years that we laugh over and over is, is this. My husband, who is one of three boys, he's the oldest one. He started off his junior high football career as a Bernie pup. So in seventh grade, he has his first football experience. And like, if you've played a junior high sport, you know this. If you've had children that have played junior high sports, you know this. That at junior high, you are so lucky if any part of your uniform fits your body. Because there are so many different sizes of kids at that age and just not enough to go around. And so for my husband, in seventh grade, his pants were too big. They were way too big. And um, so my, my in-laws go to watch him play, and they see him down at his first game on the football field. And my mother-in-law notices something. She notices that Torin, my husband, cannot focus on the game ahead because he is too busy yanking up those pants between every down. He would stand up and yank on his pants. Now, before I tell you what she does, let me give a disclaimer about her and tell you she is precious and let me tell you that she is the most competitive person that I know. And if she were standing up here, she'd tell you that I was. It's not true. She's the most competitive person I know. And she's just cool. She's cool. Back, I was there in junior high when he was in junior high. Even though I don't remember this story, I've actually known my husband since the sixth grade. But I can tell you this, what she does to him in that point, I know it didn't wreck him socially. He was still great after that. So this is what she does. She sees him down on the field. 
that competitive spirit starts coming out in her. And she thinks, we are having none of this. This is our, our maiden voyage of football, and it is not going to start like this. So while my, hus- while my husband, who is seventh grade, and all that comes with seventh grade in the huddle on the football field, she goes to her car. The next thing he knows, he feels a tugging around his waist in the huddle. Did I mention it was in the huddle and he's in seventh grade? <laughs> on the football field, she, he looks down. I'm not kidding. This is so true. She is on the football field with duct tape she found in her car. And she is taping his waist as he's listening to what they are doing next. She did that. And I, I, I laughed the first time she told me that story all those years ago when um, we were first dating. We were actually engaged. And, and I thought, my word, I'm about to be married. And I don't think I have what it takes to be a mother. What on earth possessed her to want to do that? Like, what is she feeling? What, I don't have what this takes. Now, fast forward five years. I have been married four years now, and I am just having my first child. And as I put my arms out and they lay my newborn son, Cole West McCoy, into my arms, and I look down into that beautiful, precious face, do you know what thought came back to me? I will duct tape whatever you need, whenever you need it. I got it as a mother. I will do anything crazy for you because I love you so deeply. And so I'm thinking, it is not our fault, moms. It is our kid's fault. If we didn't love this so much, we wouldn't do all the crazy stuff we did. So students, you don't blame yourselves. We haven't done anything. It's not our fault. It's so awesome. It's so awesome to be a mom and the privileges that we get with that and the blessings. And just like Sarah said, good, just happy Mother's Day to you. We know that there are so uh, many of you that might not be crying tears of joy at being a mother or anything that has to do with that relationship this morning because you have tears of pain or tears of grief. God has put you on my heart for um, weeks, and I have been praying for you. I have been praying that our sovereign God, in the only way that he can, will come into your life today and go into the deep recesses of who you are and into your heart and would comfort you and would give you peace on this day that might otherwise bring so much pain and grief. So on that note, I'm going to pray for us, and then we'll, we'll get into our lesson this morning. Holy Father, Thank you for this time. Thank you for motherhood. Thank you for being an example of an amazing parent and the perfect parent. So God, I know I have an ask of you this morning. I would ask that you would come and that you would reveal yourself to us. Because when we come into contact with you and when you reveal yourself to us, we change. Our lives don't stay the same. And so would you send your spirit to come and to wash over us. And drench us in the truth of your word. We love you. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. As I said earlier, I'm a student pastor. But I told first service right after I said that, I said, actually, I think every student I know will never speak to me again. Because I just told their mothers to irritate them and to tape them with duct tape. And then it works beautifully. And that's not true. So I don't know if I'm a student pastor after this day. Because I may have no more students to even minister to. But one thing we get to do as student pastors is some really cool, fun stuff. We um, love to do life with teenagers, and that's the best thing about this job is that I get to walk alongside other teens, and we get to chase after Jesus together. And we get to um, come together and know one another and live life together. And ways that we do that is through camps or, or through Bible studies. or We have our own Wednesday night service that's like this where we come and we learn who Jesus is and praise him together. 
And every year we go on a fall retreat, and at that retreat, one of the fun things that I look forward to doing is we go zip lining. Now, I don't know. I, I know that some of you have zip lined in here, so I want to tell you, in case you have not, what, it, what my experience has been. When we go zip lining, we go to, you walk up to a, a 40-foot wooden platform. And when you're at the bottom of that platform, you put on a harness around your waist, you put on a helmet, and you walk to the top of the platform. And when you get up there, there's a couple of attendants up there, and they take that harness and they tether you with a rope. They tether you from your harness to a cable that hangs overhead. That cable goes from the wooden platform and it goes out lots of feet way out in front of you to a pole out there. And ultimately you jump off and you ride that sucker all the way almost to the end. And you're 40 feet over the ground at an exhilarating pace. And it is awesome. And I love to do it because we giggle, we laugh, we go in, in groups of four. And so we look over at each other and we, we, we're just saying how great we are. And it's awesome. And walls come down and we get to have this experience together. And I love it. But it also scares the mess out of me. It does, and it's not. You would think it's when I'm flying up 40 feet over the ground and you're going at a high rate of speed and you're looking down and thinking I could fall and die at any minute. That is not what scares me to death. You know what scares me to death? It's after they've tethered me. They've hooked that rope onto my harness and they put it onto that cable and then they ask you to do something. They ask you to sit down on the platform and let your feet just dangle over. You got 40 feet underneath you. And all of a sudden, you start to look down. And when you look down, you feel like that platform, it kind of starts moving. kind of feel like it's shaking. And they give you just enough time to think, what on earth am I doing up here? Is this a good idea? And then you know what you do? You take a look at the attendants who just attached you with that tether. And you're like, do they know what they're doing? I mean, is this the first day on the job? And then you think, I think I just saw one of them drinking out of a juice box. I don't think they're even old enough to do. And man, my mind just goes. That zip lining always reminds me of my life with Jesus, pursuing Jesus. God has this rich, full, faith-filled life for us. He calls us out in faith to follow him and to do things that we can't see the end, that we trust in who he is. And most of the time, I'm all in. Let's do this, God. Let's go. I'm all in. But there are times in my life where I'm like, I don't think this is a good idea. Is this tether of Jesus Christ that has tethered me to God, is it going to hold? Can I trust him? Is he going to do what he says he's going to do? Am I going to be that one person that he didn't come through for? Am I going to be the one story that they point to that God is not faithful to me? I don't know if you've ever had those experiences before as you've followed Jesus. For those of you who have given your life and surrendered to him, if you've had that feeling of questioning your faith. But I know that we have today um, a group of people in the Bible that have been just where I am. And God has used their lives over and over in my life to teach me so much about myself and so much about who he is. It's a people called the Israelites. They are God's original people. And in the Old Testament, there was a man named Abraham. And God saw the big faith he had and said, Abraham, I'm going to call you out from where you're at, and I'm going to take you to a promised land, and I've got a life for you. And I'm going to increase um, your family. You are going to have descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky. And I'm going to be your God, and you're going to be my people. And God keeps that 
covenant promise with him and he leads them out into the promised land. But we're now hundreds of years later, we're going to be in Exodus chapter 14 and we're hundreds of years later and Abraham's people, God's people, the Israelites, they are no more there. They are now in Egypt and they find themselves in slavery in Egypt. They have been there for over 400 years in these dire circumstances. This, these day after day of being oppressed, of experiencing brutality, day after day of, do you know that the people at this point, the Israelites that we will see, they've never known anyone in their own family who has done anything but be a slave. They've lived completely in hopelessness. And finally, it becomes so much, the Bible says that they cry out to God to come save them from this slavery. And God hears those. So he calls a man named Moses. You've seen the story, I'm sure, and you know about Moses. He calls Moses out to go before Pharaoh, to through Moses to say, let my people go. Pharaoh at first says, nah, it's not going to happen. But after a series of plagues, some miraculous wonders that God does through his person of Moses, he turns the blood, uh, the river into blood, the Nile River into blood. He sends gnats. He sends frogs all over the place. The livestock dies. They're having Passover where the Israelites, the night before that they get to leave, they're in the home. The spirit of death comes by. And Pharaoh finally says, just leave. Just go away. And so in Exodus 14, we are going to catch up with the Israelites and what they are doing. They are walking out of Egypt They have just got their get-out-of-jail card, and they are going to the land of the promises of God. So Exodus chapter 14, if you received the Bible when you came in, Exodus is the second chapter. I mean, sorry, the second book of the Bible. Verse 5. When word reached the king of Egypt that the Israelites had fled, Pharaoh and his officials changed their minds. What have we done? Letting all those Israelite slaves get away, they asked. So Pharaoh harnessed his chariot and called up his troops. He took with him 600 of Egypt's best chariots, along with the rest of the chariots of Egypt, each with his commander. The Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. So he chased after the people of Israel who had left with fists raised in defiance. Pharaoh had had just long enough as the Egyptians, um, as the Israelites were leaving Egypt, he had just long enough to think, man, what have I done? Who's going to do all the work around here? What's this going to mean for our economy? So he gets, his, he gets his group, right? He gets his soldiers to go after him. In the meantime, while they're doing that, the Israelites are experiencing freedom. And I love the way the, the New Living Translation says it, that they leave Egypt with their fist raised in defiance. We are free. We are no longer your slave. Take that, Pharaoh, our God. He has answered our prayers and he is leading us to our promise. And so you don't see an oppressed slaved people anymore you see a bold confident people who have experienced god and so they walk out with this faith this fist raising faith they have had 400 years of the same thing i go to sleep i don't sleep long i get up and i work hard and i have no hope and i have children who have the same outcome as what i'm about to have as well that's what they had My children have no hope. I have no hope. We have nothing. But now we're walking out free. I'm going to go follow God to a land where I have my own home, where my children are going to have a different life than I had. See, what had happened to them is that they had experienced the character of God. 
They had seen God's character in the power of all the plagues that he did, his provision, the way he provided Moses, of his love, of his promise-keeping, of his leadership, and all of those characteristics that they got to experience of who he is. It was a revelation. God allowed them a revelation of who he was. And when they received that revelation, do you know what a revelation of God does? It requires a response. When you come into the holiness and the holy work of who God is, it requires a response of your life. I know exactly what that's like. My first, my first response to who God was, my first time that I had this, this fist-raising faith was when I was a freshman in high school. Now, I've already told you that I had parents that loved Jesus deeply and wanted me to have that same relationship. But as, by the time I was a freshman, I still, it was still their faith. And so as a freshman, there was a girl that came home from college. And when she did, she had asked me and a few other girls in high school if we wanted to have a Bible study with her. And so the irritation was going off. I'm thinking Bible study, irritation. Okay, yeah, I'll go. I'll go do this. So I went to the Bible study with her, and it was during that time that I began to study the life of Jesus and how he came to redeem me. And it all started to make sense. You see, I wasn't an axe murderer, but I had my sin. I gossiped. And I was greedy and I was selfish. And I didn't respect my parents or my teachers all the time. And I didn't make choices that would, that would honor him. And I saw the gulf between me and God because of his holiness and who he is. And I knew he could never come into my sin because that's not who he is. And I saw, I appreciated, I finally appreciated the work of what Jesus did on the cross for me. And at 14, as a freshman in high school, I mean, you might be surprised. You might not remember. And those of you that are there, you know, you could carry a lot of stuff inside. Life can be heavy. And it can be hard. You're trying to figure out a lot of stuff. And when I asked Jesus into my life as a freshman in high school, I felt like a weight. Just the moment it happened, just a weight had come off me and just gone on to the cross. And I felt like I'm free. I'm free. I'm 14. I'm free. And that revelation of who he was required this response for me. Not only did I ask Jesus into my life, but I changed the way I did life. I started studying. I started changing the way I treated people. I started changing the way I spoke to my parents. My, the priorities I set in my life. The goals I have for my life. Because when I thought about it, I thought, my word... The projection of my life right before this was no hope. It was slavery. When I was studying during that Christmas break, we locked into Romans 6, 6, which says when you give your sins, they are nailed to the cross with Christ and you are enslaved to them no more. You were enslaved to them no more. That made so much sense to me. I was not that person anymore. I was new and I could walk out boldly every day in him. So I'd ask you right now, how has God revealed himself to you? What victory has he given you? Where are you not enslaved anymore? Would you describe your faith as fist raising? Do you defy the enemy to come against the God that you know? God has blown me away since that time. It just wasn't at that moment when I asked him into my life that I had fist-raising faith. Now, you know this if you walk with Jesus, that it's got a lot of ups and downs. It's got a lot of ups and downs. Life is hard, but he is faithful. 
And I have seen him through my own prayers and do things in my life that I have prayed and asked them for. But I have witnessed the working he's done in others' life, the way he's saved people, the way he's rescued them, the way he's gone after them, just like he went after to save the Israelites. I've seen that in others. I've seen people who I never thought would darken the door of a church ever, even on Christmas and Easter, come and receive him. I have seen someone in such despair and grief to be filled with the peace that passes all understanding. I have seen people who are down to their last dime, not knowing how to pay their next bill, to only receive that exact amount that they need in the mailbox the next day. I have seen students, many students, that were hopeless, that were hitting the bottom of the pit, turn and be touched by the creator God. And all of those things, all of those things make me want to raise my fist and say, you did it, God. You are glorious. You saved us. You saved them. You are faithful to us. God is alive and active and he's working. And you and I can trust him and boldly walk out our days confidently with our fist raised faithfully in him. God has used the story of the Israelites over and over in my life, over and over for the years he has, because when I look at the Israelites, I always see me. And when I, the Israelites, they're doing really good right now with this fist raising business, but something's about to happen. Life is going to happen to them. And you're going to see that something, that, that confidence that they just had, it's very waning right now to say the least. So verse 10, as Pharaoh approached, the people of Israel looked up and panicked when they saw the Egyptians overtaking them. They cried out to the Lord and they said to Moses, why did you bring us out here to die in the wilderness? Weren't there enough graves in Egypt for us? What have you done to us? Why did you make us leave Egypt? Didn't we tell you this would happen while we were still in Egypt? We said, leave us alone. Let us be slaves to the Egyptians. It's better to be a slave in Egypt than a corpse in the wilderness. One look. They looked up. What happened to the fist? What happened to the faith? What happened about the bold confidence of what God was going to do? You know what happened. I know what happened. That one look. In your life, it might have been that one phone call. It might be that one thing your spouse did. That one thing someone said, that one thing that happened at work, that one hope that you had that didn't come to fruition, that one disappointment, that one frustration, you know it. It's that one thing that has you take your eyes and you're sitting on the platform looking down and it's given you just enough time to question the goodness of God. And you don't do it. And you focus instead on your position and where you're at and struggles and afflictions come and you panic. Now, I studied this story originally 14 years ago. 14 years ago, I went with a group of ladies, and we took months and months, almost an entire year, just to study the story of the Israelites coming out of Egypt and ultimately God landing them in the promised land. So up to this point, when I got to this point, I am in this story. I am right there, man. I've seen all the miracles God's done. I've seen how they cried out and how he answered. He came to, to get them. 
I've seen the victory he's done, and I am there on God's side. I am seeing it all from his point of view. And so right when I get to this point, I love when they were raising their fist. I mean, I'm like, yeah, we got this going. They're doing it. They get it. And then, excuse me for two seconds. Then this happens. The look. So I talk to myself a lot. I talk to God a lot. And um, I'm going to be real vulnerable for you, with you here in just a second because at this point, I cannot believe what I am reading. God, what, what are they doing? What happened to the fist? What happened to their faith? My goodness. They just got to see all those miraculous things you did in Egypt. Those plagues? Hello? There were 10. It wasn't like one. There were 10 of them. There was like blood in the entire river. And I'm, did they really think that you would call them out somewhere just so they could die there? Did they not think that you were not with them? I mean, it says in your word, you were with them a cloud by day, a fire by night. I can see all this. What is wrong with your people? Then I come up for air because I'm ready to go again. So like I'm taking that next breath because I can say a lot of words in one breath, but it was time to go again. And when I did, in only the way God does and in his beautiful, sweet mercy and grace, he washed a question over me in that one breath I was taking. And this is the question he said to me. And I could hear it as clearly as you can hear me right now. And that doesn't happen a lot. It happened on this date 14 years ago. Marissa, what has happened to your faith? What has happened to your trust in me? See, um, at that time, 14 years ago, I had agreed to do this Bible study, but it was an extremely, extremely hard season in my life. My husband and I had just, um, we had just experienced our third miscarriage in a row. And not only that, well, I had that miscarriage, and when I had that third miscarriage, it was actually my second trimester. It was a very hard time for us, and after I had that one, I was told that I would not be able to have any more children. And so... I think subconsciously, I did not do this on purpose. I think I had started compartmentalizing my faith. I I trusted him enough to still keep in Bible study. I trusted him enough to come around other believers. But I didn't trust him with everything. I didn't realize I had done that. I didn't realize I would push him to the side. I didn't realize I was sitting on the platform when I had that terrible stuff come into my life. And I was questioning I was questioning my life with Jesus. Can I trust him to hold me? He tethers me to God. Is he going to do what he says he's going to do? This is not what I was in for. Why, God, why did you let me get to this point in my life in the first place? Why did I have to have these three miscarriages? Why did I have to get pregnant in the first place? I asked that question. Does that sound familiar? Just what the Israelites asked. Why did you bring me out here in the desert if you're just going to let me die? It was gentle. It was a sweet question. And again, I had to just say, God, you're right. You're right. I've done this. I've taken my eye off of who you are. I've let these circumstances of my life, the circumstances that change the bad, the hard things, and what I was experiencing is no means can maybe even hold a candle to some of the stuff you were going through. But I let the conditions and the circumstances of the situation that I had been in, I let it affect the way I looked at God. It changed the character of who I thought God was. 
But my circumstances and your circumstances, they don't change the character of God. He is always who he is. He's always good. He's always kind. He's always faithful. He's always trustworthy. And he will do what he says he's going to do. And he has a promises for each and every one of us. And so I, I, it was one of those aha moments. And so I said, God, you're showing me myself through these people. So if you're taking them to a promised land, then that means you've got promises for me. And so I started getting in the word. And in addition to continue studying this life of the Israelites, I started to study promises of God. Because I wanted to grab a hold of those. And I wanted to walk boldly out. And I wanted to tell the enemy of my health goodbye. And I wanted to raise my fist in faith, knowing that God was going to do what he said he was going to do. And so I started going after the promises. Do you know how many promises are in the Bible? Over 3,000. That's about one of every page, I'd almost say. And there were a few at that time that God spoke deeply into me. And the first one is this. It was very practical for me. I'm, I'm kind of a practical person. I kind of like to know where we're at, where the rubber meets the road. And this one is John 16, where Jesus says, In this world you will have trouble, but you can have peace. Because you know why? Because I have overcome it all, and I have victory in this. And that gripped me. That gripped me. And I knew that there was trouble. And it came, it came in Genesis 3 when we had the fall originally. And God said it would happen. And ever since that point, he's done everything he can to redeem us back to him. And he does it through his son, Jesus. And he didn't stop. Just because my circumstances changed, it didn't mean he got out of the game. He saw the Israelites. He saw the enemy coming. He saw what happens in my life. He saw what happens in your life. And he's still there. He sees it. And he's working. And he's redeeming us. And he's calling us back to him. It's so that promise said, okay, Lord, but I can have peace and you have victory. And I can raise my fist. I grabbed a hold of Romans 8.28 that all that love him are called according to his purpose, he will work out the good of that. And I knew that he was going to take this, that my circumstances he would use for his good and that he would be brought glory. And I had lost that. I had lost the good that God would, something that was meant for harm, that he was going to do something good in it. And I pushed him away and I looked down. I looked off that platform. Now I know um, probably most of you haven't had anything with miscarriage or maybe even infertility, but there's those of us that have tough. It's grief. I never expected to experience until I had that. And I know that none of us in here, at least I don't think have had 600 chariots chasing after us with a bunch of Egyptians in them. But I, I do know this. I do know this, that a lot of you have got an enemy in your sights. I know a lot of you have something right now where you question the goodness and the promises that God has for you too as well. It is keeping you from walking fully out from him and raising your faith confidently, your fist confidently in faith for him. I know that. I know that some of you have got job stuff that you are dealing with that you either are about to lose one or that you have lost it, that you need one, and that you're wondering when you're going to get one. I know that there are those of you in here that have marriages that are strained like no other, and you are crying out, asking God to heal this or to even give you a love for this person again, to not be able to experience anything yet. I know that there are those of you that are sick, that have a disease or some kind of illness that won't go away, and you, it, you have stormed the gates of heaven, and you are still persisting in that. And so you question, is he hearing me? Does he know? Will he heal me? How will I get this strength? How am I supposed to live out a life for him if I feel this way? Moms, some of us, man, we've got children that are running the complete opposite direction 
that we want them to run. And we have been on our knees asking God, God, please grab a hold of them, bring them back, bring them to you. And they are still marching. They're still going. What is the enemy doing in your life that is causing you right now to lose trust in him? I knew the moment that he had asked me that question, Marissa, what has happened to your faith? What has happened to your trust in me? I knew that he was calling me to come back. I knew that he was calling me to trust him in the things that I couldn't see. I knew he was calling me to look at who he is and who, what he's done and just trust him in spite of what my circumstances said. And so as I pursued him and as I kept studying the one verse that I have used ever since that day 14 years ago, because times have come up again over my life and all these years, this same enemy can creep in on different issues in your life and you just start to wane in your trust. You start to wonder, is he good? What is he doing here? I don't understand this. This is not the way I would do it. Running out of time. We almost don't have enough left. I can't stand them. What's going to happen? All those things come in. And repeatedly, God puts this on my heart. It's Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding, but in all your ways acknowledge him and he will direct your path. Trust in him even when you don't understand it. God's got you. You can walk out with him boldly and confidently with your hands raised because your circumstances, my circumstances, they do not change the character of who he is. Your emotions might be telling you one thing. He's forgotten me. He's led me out here. He just wants the worst for me. He has gone. He has fled. He doesn't love me. Why would a kind God, why would a good God, all of those things that the enemy would love us to believe, they are not true. Those circumstances, those thoughts, they do not change the character of who God is. And you and I, for those of us who follow Jesus, we have a watching world into our lives. It is more compelling, more compelling for someone who doesn't know Jesus to look into your life and to see how you boldly and confidently trust him in the hard times than it ever is in your best, wonderful moment, joyous moments. How are you walking out? How are you following him? How are you confidently trusting him in spite of what the circumstances say? Like I said, I had studied this story of the Israelites for months with ladies 14 years ago. For months. And those, it was in those first couple of months that this... Exodus 14 kind of hit home with me. And so God continued to work on my heart for months and months after that. And I grabbed hold of those promises and claimed victory in him. And at the end of all those months later, I'm sitting with these women. And we're sitting around a circle. And one of the ladies looks up after we close the book. After the the Israelites, they will ultimately... They're going to ultimately get to their promised land. Now, it is going to look ugly sometimes, but they will get there. It's just kind of like you're in my life. We have some ups and we have some downs, but they will get there. You need to finish that story if you haven't. But as they um, stepped into the promised land, we closed our books. And the lady that was one of us in our group looked around and said to um, each of us, she said, 
where has God have, where's he had to grow his trust of himself in you? What promise has he been trying to lead you to? What is your Canaan? I had um, come to real firm grips with the Lord, knowing that I could not have any children. And I had said months before this, no matter what, I follow you. I had to ask forgiveness of my doubts in him and how I compartmentalized in him. And I said, no matter what, I follow you. But when she asked us that question all these months later, when she said, where is he? Where is he having developed trust in you? What have you had to give him? I, I went back to all the stuff that I had been going through, just like the Israelites and And when she said, where's your Canaan? It's a great question. Because all these months later, I put my hands on my ever-expanding belly because I was pregnant again. I have told you that I have a son, and I will duct tape whatever he wants. But I also have a daughter. She is 13 years old. And her name is Canaan. What do you need to trust God with? Where's your Canaan? Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for your faithfulness. And thank you for the questions you're willing to ask into our lives that make us Think about you and the way we're going. Thank you for all the mothers. Thank you for life and thank you for this moment. God, we want to trust you and we want to be a people who live boldly, boldly out for you. That when others look at us, that they see you and your goodness and your mercy and your kindness, your faithfulness. So, Lord, I pray that this morning. Hide this deep in our heart, Lord. Change us. Love you, Lord. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.